Hey, you know, I can't believe it. It's Friday. We've survived another week. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about us, us, us. You know, the editorial we. <laughs> the world is still here, you know. And there's been many predictions that it was spinning in bad orbit there for a while. But, you know, uh, I, I, uh, I just think uh, tonight uh, we might as well just let it all hang on. You know, Christmas is coming on. Oh, the mad season is approaching rapidly. Uh, people are... Uh, in fact, I, I saw I saw the other day I was in this uh, in this department store, and uh, of course the Christmas shopping madness is already beginning. But it's taken on a new tone these days. I mean, uh, what with uh, inflation and non-inflation and uh, no jobs and all the rest of it, it's taken on some fascinating uh, side issues. Uh, for example, I saw a lady uh, the other day uh, standing in in this notions department, and she was trying to gift wrap a stapler. Now, I thought, you know, that's a, that's a great idea to give a guy for Christmas. Oh, just what I wanted, the thing to staple all the bills together. And, uh, you know, you keep, them, <laughs> you keep them in control. And I, and I just thought to myself, what, what fantastic Christmas gifts some people think to give other people. Well, the greatest Christmas gift I ever saw one time arrived in the Army when I was, uh, you know, I was walking around in the Army. And, uh, and I'm not going to give you the suggestion as a Christmas gift, although if you wish to take it as that, Maybe it's not a bad idea. I'm in uh, Company K there, you know, and uh, the kind of stuff that guys get in the army uh, as Christmas gifts mailed to them is even beyond the comment, really. Uh, like a, a a pair of uh, fake GI mittens, for example. You always get these brown mittens. Uh, somebody sends you one of these brown scarves, you know. You like nothing better than another GI scarf. I remember one time somebody sent me a money belt. When I was in the army, the one thing you don't need in the army is a money belt. Uh, you know, just because <laughs> there's just not enough of it bouncing around. They have to put it around your waist on a belt. But uh, you know, money belt. But the one time, talk about a creative Christmas gift. Uh, we were we were uh, just one of those brief moments when I was living actually in a barracks. You know, barracks life is not the same as tent life uh, or field life. Barracks life has a certain continuity to it. It's a certain uh, certain hominess to it at times. I mean, as that is if you're used to living in a garage. I mean, it's a, it's a, it can be very homey. So uh, this particular time, Christmas is coming up, you know, and everybody's getting these gifts uh, sent to them. For example, I'll never forget the time. I, I'll have to tell this embarrassing story. We used to have a thing called mail call. Now, a mail call consists of just that. The, the, uh, this corporal, the, the uh, supply corporal, would go down to the mail department there and he would come back in the jeep and he has this sack full of mail for company K. See, old Elkins would go up there and he'd come back with a thing. And of course, uh, not all mail was appreciated. I hate to say this. Uh, you'd think it's kind of fun, but on this uh, particular uh, great moment, uh, I'm standing in the crowd of guys. By the way, I have a, one, the only, one of the very few pictures I have of me in the Army is a, is a picture taken during mail call. There's a whole bunch of guys all standing around wearing fatigues. And uh, uh, standing up on the, on the back of the Jeep is Elkins, and he's handing out the mail. Well, the way mail is done, you see, it starts right out. He's got this big pile of stuff, and he hollers out the name. So he'll holler out, Brotschweiger, Brotschweiger, and you hear in the back, yo! And uh, at that point, he just throws it out in the crowd, saying you're supposed to pass it back to Brotschweiger. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and there's... Of course, the, the, the mail uh, can be sometimes very perishable, and at the other time it can be very personal. And uh, 
And on the one time, one occasion, I got this, you know, I got this bag. It was a box, really, wrapped in what had been a paper bag. You know, people tend to open up, rip open paper bags, and they use it to wrap a box in and stuff. Real crummy-looking package. And it was kind of busted and smashed down. And uh, it's passed back to me, and as it, as it comes back over the crowd, I can see this, what looked like a fine volcanic ash is dripping out of it. And uh, some well-meaning person had sent me a box of cookies that they made, see? <laughs> and, and I, and, and, uh, you know, the cookies never get to the Army. I, if, you're thinking, if you're thinking of sending cookies to anybody, give it up, friend. That's the worst thing you can send them, because they always arrive either petrified... Or uh, somebody opens it for postal inspection, and uh, about all you get is about three raisins. So, uh, you know, forget the cookie scene. And uh, I, I'm standing in the back there, and I get my usual gift. The, the local newspaper, the hometown newspaper, had this idea to send everybody who was in the Army uh, a, a free copy of the paper. I, never, I, I don't know of anybody who ever read a hometown newspaper once he got in the Army. Uh, the first thing you wanted to do was to forget all that. Uh, <laughs> you know, the continual hassling about uh, whether or not they're going to allow the new garage doors to be installed because of their city council, all that jazz. has nothing to do with your life. So I would get about 15 or 20 papers every time we had mail call, which I would immediately dispose of as best I could. But on this particular occasion, this, this moment, great moment in life, I'm... Uh, I'm standing in this big crowd of guys getting mail this day, and uh, they're they're passing it back. When somebody hollers, Kowalski, Kowalski, Sergeant Kowalski here. Well, this is the first sergeant. See, the first sergeant, this guy has a certain panache. You know, you understand the first sergeant is a man of considerable weight, uh, much more so than the officers in your outfit, because the officers, you don't see that often, but Kowalski is always riding your you-know-what. So you know him real good. So the the always Kowalski, Kowalski, and Kowalski's one of these little short guys. He's a little short, mean guy. He he's built a little bit like uh, I would have to say a little bit like John Riggins, uh, with a, with a, with overtones of uh, say uh, oh I would have to say uh, overtones of a of a linebacker. He was short, squat, wide, and hard as a rock. And he had these pressed fatigues, which he wore at all times. So, uh, and also, he always wore these green Air Corps sunglasses at all times, too. The Air Force glasses, you know, these mean-looking glasses. He always wore the hat pulled down. And he was a man of absolute, impenetrable, truculent dignity. He just didn't get close to Kowalski. <laughs> there was no way of saying, Hey, uh, hi, how are you, Kow uh, Kowalski? We had about 50 different... Uh, uh, off-stage um, nicknames for Kowalski, none of which I can repeat on the air here tonight because the guilty are still walking around, and also there are certain laws and uh, very, you know, very descriptive. Uh, but nevertheless, Kowalski, you never got close to Kowalski, so he's standing amid the crowd down there, sort of on the edge, watching the scene there, when all of a sudden Alkin tells, uh, Kowalski, Sergeant Kowalski, and he starts pack passing this package back. Well, the package had gotten seven-tenths unwrapped on the way where it was coming from, as often happens with mail, especially around Christmas time. See, and the package was sort of all hanging out like that, and the box was sort of busted open on one end, 
and it was a heavy cardboard flat box. But the box was very real tough, but it had been opened on one end because of getting kicked around, and the string was hanging off, and there were a couple of Christmas seals on it, and everyone could see what the, what the present was, or at least they, they could see that there was something in the box. So they're passing it back, back over the heads, when all of a sudden somebody takes the thing, he's just passing it back, see, and inadvertently he tilts it. And out of the box comes a big, about a two foot high, about six inches, a great big one, a great big gingerbread man. Sergeant Kowalski got a gingerbread man for Christmas. <laughs> there was a stunned silence. <laughs> the guy shoves it back in a box and they hand it at the Kowalski and you hear this, you hear this mutter. Kowalski got a gingerbread man for Christmas. Sergeant Kowalski. That's like, uh, you know, that's like uh, hearing, uh, uh, hearing that uh, saying uh, Godzilla, the monster, uh, just got a Shirley Temple doll for his birthday. You know? <laughs> God, he got a, he got a, a gingerbread man, hey? And so you hear in the crowd, somebody hollers, uh, can I have a bite, Sergeant? How about, let me have a bite of the foot, huh? Oh, it's purple. He says nothing. So he takes the thing, he sticks it under his arm, and as he walks away, you can see it hanging out. The head is hanging out. It's got these little raisin eyes. And it's got little gold things where the ears are. You know, these little candy things that make the ear. And it's got a little Santa Claus hat on it. Sergeant Kowalski got a Santa Claus gingerbread man for Christmas. Friends, don't make a mistake like that. You may have... Oh, yes, it's, it's, like, it's, like, it's like discovering that the chairman of the board got a set of pink bunny slippers from his grandmother for his Christmas gift. And that just doesn't make it very well with the with the with the let's say the image but on this particular this 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 christmas i saw a really inspired christmas gift arrive i mean inspired in the tent there was gold let's see there was goldberg in the tent there was gas who was in the tent with us there was uh we had the elkins used to spend some time in our tent, Zins Meister, and then he had his tent. And uh, we used to go in and out of the tent. See, the tent was nice and warm, you know, it had, it had a certain warmth to it. We had the stove going all the time. And there was a guy that was assigned to our tent for about, oh, three or four months. And you said, big, tall, skinny guy. And uh, he had, he kept his own counsel. And uh, he was enigmatic. He didn't say anything to anybody, and nobody said anything to him. He was just there, and he was passing his, passing through the company. He was on his way to another company someplace, and he was assigned to us for a while. There's always guys in life that are on detached service, no matter what life it is. I mean, uh, some guys belong in certain offices, and other guys don't. And you can sense it, can't you, Corny? <laughs> I mean, the, the permanent personnel, you sense, right? And so this guy was just passing through the company. We knew it. He knew it. There was very little contact. And he'd sit on his footlocker once in a while and write a letter. And he always put on his big black rim reading glasses to write. I mean, here was a guy about 19. He's wearing his big fat reading glasses. He looked very distinguished writing the way there. And uh, he'd get mail once in a while. And it looked like he was always getting official kind of mail. We used to get mail, you know, that was kind of smudgy. I'd get mail from, uh, you know, like... Uh, 
like a girl I knew back home. And, and you could tell she wrote this to sort of, you know, 42, maybe 52 other guys, you know. So, uh, that was the kind of stuff he didn't pay much attention. I mean, he got, he got envelopes that would come, brown envelopes with, uh, with, uh, masking tape over the back, with typed labels. I mean, obviously, this guy had some kind of a thing going back home that was much more official than we had, you know. <laughs> and once in a while, you'd see him making a call from the PX, you know, he'd get out and make a call, and he's always putting a call to what he called, euphemistically, the office. The office. Imagine a guy in the Army calling the office. This is WOR New York. <laughs> oh, fellas, I'll be right back. I have to make a call to the office. A few things I have to straighten out. I mean, <laughs> they call the office. Before we go any further, please, hit the button. Harriet, will you look at these prices? How are we going to manage our Christmas presents this year? You know, Oscar, I've been thinking. Why don't we give books as Christmas presents? Honey, that's a great idea. Uh-huh. Books do make wonderful Christmas gifts. And when you buy your books from the Barnes & Noble sale annex, you get a lot more for your money because all our books are always marked way, way down. For instance, we've got the Charlie Brown Dictionary for only $3.95 instead of $6.95. Emily Post's Book of Etiquette is just $2.95 instead of $7.95. And the complete Sherlock Holmes, regularly $8.95, is just $4.95 at the sale annex. In fact, we've got thousands of books at huge savings all the time. Bestsellers, art books, cookbooks, all kinds of books. They're all at the sale annex, right across the street from the main Barnes & Noble store at 5th Avenue and 18th Street in Manhattan. That's the Barnes & Noble sale annex for New York's biggest book bargains. Christmas time, anytime. And during December, we're open Sundays from 10 to 4 for your convenience. Well, thank you, uh, gang. He talks very fast and loud. The Royal Shakespeare Company does it again. Oh, buddy, first they gave us Sherlock Holmes, and now London Assurance. Uh, according to the copy, the outrageously funny comedy hit, here for a limited engagement through the 12th of January. A perfect holiday entertainment. Clive Barnes said, and we quote, it's an enormously funny, a complete charmer. And, uh, Doug, well, that's the way he talks. Douglas Watts of the Daily News said, London Assurance is marvelous. So, anyway, it's gotten good reviews. Get your tickets now to the Broadway's newest hit, London Assurance. Uh, where else? It's at the Palace Theater. On Broadway. We're sure, we're sure, we're sure. At Shopwell. Have we got a beef? Sure we've got a beef. Of the tender, tasty, juicy beef Shopwell's so famous for. Shopwell's fantastic quality-fed beef. Sirloin steaks, shells of beef, chuck steak, rib roast, fresh ground beef, even filet mignon. All your favorite cuts, all USDA choice beef, and all priced to help you get more while you spend less at Shopwell. You're going to love Shopwell's beef. Am I sure? You can count on it. Shopwell's unconditional guarantee guarantees it. There's a giant beef sale at Date Shopwell. They have these giant beefs. It's tremendous. That's right. Look <laughs> it up there, Corny. Thank you. <laughs> I, I just read the copy. I don't make it up. Giant beef sale. Uh, 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 10, 15 foot high beefs. Unbelievable. They have 700 foot horns. Would you please hit it again? The current issue of TV Guide magazine examines the public's fascination with Marilyn Monroe. As a thinly fictionalized play about M.M. comes to television, TV Guide recalls the woman who, 12 years after her death, 
is still box office dynamite. In the same issue, a look at the television rating services. Can 1,200 households be wrong about what the whole country likes on TV? Maybe. But 800,000 families say they're right. A report on the rating services and how they work. This week, TV Guide's cover story profiles Michael Landon. As the star, writer, director, executive producer, musical consultant, and film editor of Little House on the Prairie, Landon's going full tilt. The reasons why make interesting reading in TV Guide, America's biggest selling magazine. TV Guide, on sale everywhere. My name is Ebenezer Scrooge. Have you got a candy for me? Our name is Shrafts, and have we got a candy for you. So roll your eyes and pat your tummy, lick your lips, cause yum, yum, yummy. Have we got a candy for you? A chocolate cream and a cherry dream, a jelly slice and a drop with ice, a crispy nut and a coconut. Whether you like your candy sweet or sour, hard or soft, crispy or creamy, Schraff's has it all wrapped up for Christmas. From a little bag of Schraff's Starlights to a gold chest of Schraff's chocolates. Well, my tummy. Somehow that's a grotesque idea. Of, of, uh, Scrooge getting a box of Shraft candies for Christmas. <laughs> what sort of tomfoolery is this? Barleycorn, barleycorn, return this to where you've got it, and I want to see no more like this in this office. This is an office of business. Oh, come on, poor old Scrooge. How far down he's gone. Uh, friends all over the country, a lot of people have begun to worry about the water they drink. You know, this is a country that's not happy unless it's worrying. I think that's our national uh, hang-up. We love to worry. <laughs> I knew we'd have to find a crisis after Watergate. But according to Sunday's New York Times magazine, that's one thing you don't have to worry about in New York City. I guess most people don't even drink water in this city. Not with all the scotch and the bourbon and all that. But anyway, you know, martinis. Some experts, however, say that New York has the safest drinking water in the country. And you'll learn the unusual reasons why in Sunday's Times. Let's see. You'll also learn in Sunday's Times why Arab leaders have rallied around Yasser Arafat. I got such a bad mind. Every time I hear that name, I keep thinking, Yasser, that's my baby. I mean... <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyway, uh, they've rallied around Yasser Arafat and what the new outlook can mean to the world. Everybody walking around. So, this sounds like a fun edition of the New York Times, what with drinking water problems and Yasser Arafat and all that. And uh, you pick it up this weekend. And uh, it's the sun Sunday New York Times, complete with the New York Times magazine. Okay? Very good. Now I'm back again. Seems like I've been gone away for maybe two, three weeks, right? <laughs> it just seems that way. That's, that's called the theory of relativity. And uh, the theory of relativity is, if you notice that how, when you're watching a television show, and uh, you can watch, uh, you know, maybe 15, 20 minutes of the drama, and then I come the commercials, and the commercials seem to go on for maybe six or seven months. Well, that's because you're dealing with the theory of relativity. Time does not move in a straight line. 
In fact, they believe that time is a product of the human mind. So 15 or 20 seconds can seem like two years. I mean, uh, two years can seem like 12 seconds, depending on how it's going, you know, how things are hanging. That's uh, called the theory of relativity. <laughs> it's kind of good, isn't it? I thought you'd like it. We get a lot of good, big, fat laughs over that theory around here. We talk about it. But uh, while we're, you know, oh, this is a serious place. We talk about theories like that at times. Theory of relativity. Uh, the other day I got into a fantastic argument with John Scott here in the newsroom over quantum mechanics. And that was kind of big argument. Uh, he, 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 uh, what his argument was, of course, is that uh, he took his car down the other day to have a uh, new gasket put in the, in, the, uh, in the radiator, just a little gasket, you know. And when he saw the, uh, the, the price they charged him for this thing, see, he staggered back. It was worth more than the car. He couldn't believe it. And I pointed out to John, I says, you're really dealing there with what we call a quantum leap. That's a quantum mechanical concept. He got madder than hell. Don't bring up religion to John. There's no way he thought I was, you know, trying to proselytize for whatever religion he believes that I, I pursue. You know, he keeps seeing me in this burlap shirt, and he thinks it's a religious robe that I have. So, uh, you know, I don't like to get into those things with people. Every man has his own hang-up, so... <laughs> it's the sandals that I wore to work last week that did it, too. You know, and the fact that I sit in the studio here and burn candles when I do the thing there. Black candles. And, uh, you know, the rumors get out like that. I don't know how they get started. I mean, you know. But, uh... <laughs> well, I, I, I don't make the news. I only report it, friends. I mean, uh, let's face it. I figure that we're only here for a short time anyway. It's a quick trip around. You might as well do it while you're doing it. That's all. You know, there's no way to call it back. That's right. Already are a lot of you out there feeling uh, uh, feeling a regret for having missed the brass ring on the first 17 trips around on the merry-go-round because you thought, you you know, you, who wants a brass ring? You kept our... <laughs> I'll tell you who wants one. Would you please give me that tape that I gave you in there? That, 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 sneak it in there on me, please. 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 Let's uh, salute all those out there who missed the brass ring. <laughs> missed it, huh, buddy? All right. And now, we'd like to salute that awful, that awful, somebody, somebody just led you astray, buddy. You missed a big chance. But now, don't give up. Because you never know. I say you never know. You never know when you may get a chance to hit the big old, big old jackpot. You got to be ready. Keep your own knees to loose. Be ready to leap when it comes. All together now, let's sing it out. <laughs> That's enough of that. That's enough. It's enough. This is a very dignified radio station. We don't mess around with that kind of stuff, please. Guy standing over with a checkered vest singing about old Suzanne. Get out of here, will you? Fool. Knave. Now, uh, while we're on the subject of knavery, let's see. We have one more warning here for you here, for those of you that are... Uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company does it again. First, they gave us uh, Sherlock Holmes. 
Very exciting. Now, London Assurance, the outrageously funny comedy hit for a limited engagement through the 12th of January. The perfect holiday entertainment. And truly British. All the way down the line. That makes it official theater. And where can you see London Assurance, which has gotten such great reviews from all kinds of diverse people? Get your tickets now. London Assurance at the Palace Theatre on Broadway. This is Tommy Macon. I'm sitting in the John Barleycorn, located at 209 East 45th Street, just off 3rd Avenue. The John Barleycorn is New York's first and most famous Irish singing pub. If you want a sample of what Irish hospitality is really like, you should come in and soak up the atmosphere. Hospitality is warm, the people are cheerful, and the service is just fantastic. They have an old saying at the barley corn, there are no strangers here, only friends you haven't met. And you can prove that to yourself by dropping in anytime. You can have lunch, dinner, or supper seven days a week, and a good time all the time. The food is fit for royalty, and as a matter of fact, some of the recipes have been handed down from the courts of Irish kings. The John Barleycorn. The Irish Oasis in Midtown Manhattan. Hey, that was good. <laughs> Can I have the opening of that again? Just, just the opening in that place. Uh, you'll, you'll, ch- yeah, there. She's, here we go. No, let, listen. This, this is Tommy Makem. I'm watch. sitting in the John Barley Corn, located at two hundred. Now wait till they start singing these songs. South Third Avenue. <laughs> John Barleycorn and Hold it there. You notice that the Jews harp goes perfectly with uh, Italian music there. They were playing there. Oh, you want to hear what the perfect gift was? Well, all right, I'll tell you. Tonight. I-, I wonder if this guy is listening tonight. He he came from New York City, and uh, he was the only the only GI that I knew. Now, I knew two others, come to think of it, that were from New York City. And uh, this particular guy's name was Goldworm. And, uh, yeah, I wonder if he's on. <laughs> I always liked that name. And he was a tall, very, very taciturn type guy. Uh, he, he was totally different from his name. Very distinguished looking uh, GI. And uh, already at the age of 19, maybe going on 20, he had, uh, he had developed a set of imaginary, you can just see him in your mind, imaginary silver gray sideburns. You know, that kind of guy. And uh, he, he was always, he was a mysterious figure. Uh, he would, uh, for example, we had this latrine. And, uh, you know, latrine was a company latrine. I mean, the one thing about being in the Army, uh, all these various biological functions, uh, you, you cease to be uh, embarrassed about anything. I mean, you take a shower with 74 guys, you do everything. You know? <laughs> there it is. See, Goldworm was never seen in the latrine. Where he did his... Uh, his uh, his ablutions, no one quite knew. It was just uh, there was a rumor around that he didn't. You know, he was behind all that sort of human stuff. Very distinguished guy. Until this particular cataclysmic and exciting event. Okay. One night. This was about two weeks, just about like now. You know, about two, three, maybe three, four weeks just before Christmas, and it was cold. Oh boy, we were in this place. It was cold, mean. And the snow was out there, uh, back of the rifle range, and the, the the road was nothing but hard, uh, that gray iron ice 
rutted cold and the wind was blowing over the tops of the tents. And at night, when you'd lay in your bunk, the snow would drift in. We had this little ventilator at the top. And the snow would drift down like a fine powder inside the tent. And you'd see it in the light there. And you'd wake up and you'd have, you'd have little drifts of snow in the creases of your GI blanket. Ooh, it was cold. See, so one night... When I come back, nobody, nobody in the in the in the in the tent. Absolutely nobody in the tent. It was, it was, uh, it was empty, and the, the all the uh, cots were in the right. It was kind of dark, and the the uh, stove had gone down. It was cold in the tent. And now there were six guys in this tent. This is called a pyramidal tent. I walk into the tent. And I get this funny, funny sensation. I just walk in there by myself. And I'm wearing my big parka and all that stuff with the mittens and stuff. I walk in, take a sniff. What the hell? It's a strange smell in there. But it was great. It was a great smell, but a strange smell. See, I sniff. Can't figure out what it is, but it smelled good. I look around, nothing. It's changed. So in comes Elkins, drifts in. I said, hi, Elkins. Elkins said, what, what, what's that smell? I said, I have no idea. I said, I, I'm trying to figure it out myself. <laughs> and uh, we're, we're sitting on our foot lockers trying to figure out what the smell. It smelled great. We knew that it had nothing to do. It was vaguely, well, it was more than vaguely. It was because it was, it was so faint at first. It was vague. But it was very appetizing. It had nothing to do with what you smelled around the mess hall. <laughs> Being a right dad. <laughs> now, no, I don't want to put the mess hall down. It was, uh, you know, but uh, it was not uh, appetite. You walk past the mess hall. You didn't. You didn't say, "Oh God, I can hardly wait for for chow of that." Oh wow, you know. Oh man, uh, you know. You knew you were going to get the uh, tuna salad loaf, which was a big thing. We always was get uh, salmon loaf. They called it salmon loaf. You know, you've had salmon loaf with the bottom burnt and the top was raw. You remember how that was. And uh, also, we used to get these uh, uh, canteen cups full of uh, of semi-liquid jello that was called dessert, uh, which was usually poured over, say, your roll or something like that. It was called dessert. And so, you, know, you never were excited. But this was an exciting smell. An exciting smell. Now, it was a smell that was vaguely familiar, but not exactly familiar. Vaguely. What the heck is that? And Elkins... Keep sniffing. So I don't know. It smells like a, something like onions or something. So I say, what is this? What is the smell? I said, don't tell me gases. Gases. Uh, gases. Uh, no. No, it can't be. What is that? In comes Gasser. Gasser instantly walks in. He said, hey, what's this? Well, who, who's been eating in here? Because it was absolutely strictly against the, the rules to have anything to eat in the tents. That was absolutely verboten. You didn't know that about certain armies. No way. <laughs> well, <laughs> that was to prevent bugs from coming in by the million, see? So they had rules about that. But it smelled like something. And one after the other, the guys are drifting. And then finally, the whole tent is filled. And sitting over there on his footlocker, quietly saying nothing to anybody, writing a letter, is Goldworm. Well... He's the only one that didn't say anything when he came in. Goldberg, you know, Goldworm didn't say, hey, what's the smell? He, nothing. Well, of course, we were used to him not saying anything. Until maybe three days later, that remained a vague mystery. And then one night, 
somebody came back from... We were all on guard duty. In fact, the whole tent was empty except for Goldworm. And somebody came back to the tent and caught Goldworm on (laughs) flagrante. He was caught in the act. He had an electric iron. You know what electric iron is? One of these little folding kind. And he had propped this little electric iron up. We had electricity in this tent, you know. He had propped the iron up on a footlocker between a couple of bricks. So the top, was the, the, the actual hot part of the iron, was facing upward. And on the footlocker, he had his canteen. He actually had his mess kit. And he was sitting there with his thing going away, and he was frying his stuff. It came Elkins. See, Elkins caught him red-handed. See, Elkins walked in, and he's frying something in there. And it was an unbelievable smell. And Elkins came running out of the tent. See, and I was down at the other end of the company street. He always, hey, Shepard. I said, yeah, Elkins. He said, I caught him. I caught him. I says, caught him. He says, go him. Well, at that point, <laughs> I hear a lot of yelling in the tent. And, and that night... We really, we really had a night in the tent. Because Goldworm could no longer hide it. See, one of the things in the Army is that you try to hide the stuff you got from all the other guys. I mean, if, if, let's face it, if it, if it turns out you got a pound of cookies, I mean, how, how long is a pound of cookies going to go with Company K? You know, you're lucky if you get a, a raisin out of it, you know? So they just, oh, they eat the, eat the paper and the box and everything else, see, including the stamps. Well, he had hidden this thing away, and how he did it, I do not know. For about three or four weeks, he had hid it in his bunk, like like under a bunk somewhere, because we had inspections and nobody could, uh, nobody found it. Goldworm had received for Christmas from somebody back in New York a five-foot-long kosher salami. I want to tell you. I mean, it was a real one. You know the kind you see hanging in the 7th Avenue deli in the window there? I've never known anybody who actually had one of those big salamis. Now, most everybody gets a little salami, you know, a little pound salami. He had a salami that was five feet long all the time. And he had been sneaking in in it when nobody else was in the tent. He'd been knocking off chunks of the salami and frying it on his up on the oven. On that little iron, see? And eating the salami... <laughs> and he would he would sneak bread in from the from the uh, mess hall. He was making these fantastic fried salami sandwiches. And here, all the rest of us were living on salmon loaf with the cold beets, you know, and the jello. Well, <laughs> I want to say from that minute on, Goldworm be- not only became one of the boys. He became the most sought-after of the boys. I mean, you know, Goldworm, and he starts to... Well, at that point, you know, when you're caught red-handed and you got a five-foot salami, you can hardly say, All right, you guys, it's my salami, and the hell with you! You can't do that. Not when you're living in the same tent. Even Goldworm couldn't get away with that. And so every night, after it lights out, see, it just lights out, they, they, they pop off a cannon... And uh, lights would go out, see? The lights would go out. They just, company street lights out. And if you had a light in your tent that was on, they'd just come along and holler at you. And, all right, all right, come on, let's go, you guys. Lights out. And uh, we had this light bulb. <laughs> so every night after lights out, Goldworm would get out his iron. And he'd run the, the extension up and put the plug in there. And we'd sit around in the dark and, and fry salami. Well, of course, it had to happen by... By maybe the third or fourth night, somebody had to blab his big, fat, stupid mouth. 
There's always one guy that has to blab. And we never found out who it was. You know, some, some guys in the mess are all saying, you don't think I'm going to eat this slop what, what, what we eat every night in old, you know, 1042 down there in the second plateau. Are you kidding? We have a five-foot salami, and we eat it there every night. Don't tell nobody. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, that's stupid. About the third night, guys start showing up at the front of our tent after lights are out. They'd stick their head in there. Hey, hey, how about, ha, ha, ha. Oh, boy, I couldn't. Yeah, how about a, how about a piece of slummy? Well, of course, you, if you say no, he's going to say something like, oh, well, now, wait a minute, you guys. If this ever gets to the front office, you've got a salami going here. Forget it, buddy. <laughs> so one after the other, guys start drifting in. This goes for about roughly three or four days, maybe a week. And now we've got about 25 guys that are sneaking into the tent every night. <laughs> After lights out, squ- you know this is a six-man tent. I don't know whether you know how cozy a six-man tent can get when you got twenty-five guys eating fried salami all at once. It not only gets cozy, it gets pretty gamey. I mean, pretty gamey. So then guys started to make all kinds of variations on it. Uh, one guy had been on KP the day before, and he stole two eggs. So he brings in the eggs, you know. He says, how about the frying me up the eggs over there, Goldworm? And I'll, I'll take my salami chopped up in the eggs. Say, don't give me a salad. I'll have salami and eggs. Well, of course, that opened up a whole new avenue, you know. Salami and eggs. Guys start, <laughs> guys start bringing in pickles. Guys were stealing piccalilli. Guys were bringing in big fat onions. And the next thing you know, the company K Deli was in full action. And so at that point, you know, we had to do something. So Gasser finally says, all right, you guys, now listen. It's dark, you see. You can't talk too loud because the tent wall, by the way, is very narrow and very, very porous. And Gasser says, all right, you guys, now listen. He is addressing now 37 guys in our company. There were not more than 48 guys. (laughs) So he says, all right, now, you guys, from now on, every guy that comes here that his tent is going to have to give us 15 cents. 15 cents a man. Of course, there's a mumble, 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 mumble. Come on, you 15 cents a and if, and if you guys talk about this thing, if you if you continue to talk like this, we're going to raise the ante to a buck a shot. And every night, it's going to be 30 bucks from this whole crowd. Well, this went for about three days. Until one night, we're all sitting around, and we're making money now. And Goldberg, you know, Goldworm is selling the selling the salami. We got a pile of dough, and we're we're raising money. We're going to buy cokes and everything else. And one night, it finally happened. It had to happen. I will tell you in just a moment. Well, I want to tell you, I never heard such a great Christmas gift in my life as a five foot long kosher salami. I had never had kosher salami up to that point. And uh, from the minute I I tasted kosher salami, I mean, you know, the soft kind of really, you I realized that I was, I was, I was uh, sipping at the mother load spring of true gustatorial ecstasy. <laughs> Until that night, the tent flap whipped open and there sticking his head in the tent is Kowalski. All right, you guys. All right, sit, freeze, all you guys. Who the hell's frying a salami in here? Uh, who's 
fry and the salami. We're all sitting there with salami all over our traps. You know, there's 34 guys trapped with the salami. Talk about cool. Oh, Kowalski says, hand it over. Come on. Hand it over. We passed what was left of the salami from hand to hand. I'd say there was about a foot and a half left at that point. And that's a lot of salami. We just passed it hand to hand, each lovingly grasping the salami for one brief instant. Because we knew that we had had the last salami that we was ever going to have. That we was ever going to see in company camp. We just passed it from hand to hand and each one shed a Simon tear. And then Kowalski says, All right, you guys. At ease. And away he went. And for maybe a month, we could smell salami frying outside the outside the company clerk's office every night. But we never got close to it. <laughs> this is W.O.R. New York. Oh, no, 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 no. This is W.B.A.I. New York, where it's, uh, oh, 6 o'clock. Time for me to get out of here and uh, make way.